Boy, if somebody just raised $32 million and now Nestle's in the game, I guess that's going to jumpstart a lot of this too as well, I would think. Absolutely. And Impossible has announced that they intend to launch a fish broth of sorts. And really, we're seeing a lot of excitement. And everybody's recognizing that this is the next frontier and that kind of untapped opportunity. And when you look at the growth of animal protein consumption in the world, globally, animal protein consumption is rising while it's dropping in North America. However, the fastest growing is seafood. And so the crisis is serious and it can only get worse unless we do something about it. But fortunately, people are jumping in to make that difference. And I'm excited. I do believe the timeline for adoption will be compressed and we're seeing wonderful feedback from the market. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'm excited to have as a guest David Benzikin, who is the founder and CEO of Ocean Hugger Foods. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, David, why don't you just start by telling our listeners uh, some of your background and your company, your company's mission and what projects you're currently working on. Sure, so I've spent the last 10 years of my career focused on helping to advance plant-based products that help us move away from a diet and a food system that is detrimental to our planet, to human health, and to animal welfare. And in that time, I've had the privilege of working with companies in all kinds of categories, from uh, non-dairy beverages and cheese, alternatives to uh, poultry and meat alternatives. But my recent endeavor is my company Ocean Hugger Foods, which I co-founded with certified master chef James Corwell in 2016. And Ocean Hugger Foods is focused on making delicious, sustainable plant-based seafood alternatives that address our overfishing crisis. We are uh, sell these products in food service, so restaurants throughout the U.S. and Canada. And we've started by addressing two of the most unsustainable species of fish, freshwater eel, commonly known in food parlance as unagi, and uh, uh, raw tuna used for sushi and poke and other similar dishes that uh, we call ahimi. So unami is our unagi alternative, and ahimi is our ahi tuna alternative. And so tell our listeners about uh, how you make sustainable eel replacement and sustainable tuna replacement. How do you do that? Sure. So my co-founder, certified master chef James Corwell, as I mentioned, is a real culinary genius. And the background of the company is that a number of years ago, he was working for the Culinary, Culinary Institute of America, and he was sent to Japan on a work trip and he visited a place called the Tsukiji Fish Market. And it's one of the largest fish markets in the world. It's about two football field lengths long. And while there, he saw something which it's very well known for. They have a daily tuna auction. And he was so excited to go to see this marvelous feat of commerce. But when he got there and he saw how vast it was, he became extremely concerned. And that's because every single weekday, For decades, without fail, the Tsukiji fish market has sold 4 million pounds of tuna every single day. And many of those species they're selling, like the Pacific bluefin tuna, are extremely endangered. And so he had a real 
uh, crisis of conscience and decided to dedicate the next part of his career to helping to solve this problem. The solution he, he created over a number of years was a proprietary mechanical texturing process where he has figured out how to make vegetables or fruits firm and fatty while cooking flavor out of them. So we start for the tuna with a simple Roma tomato, but through our process, we're able to extract all the acidity and sweetness of the tomato and at the same time give it that meaty bite that you want out of a piece of raw fish. And then we layer flavor on top with things like non-GMO gluten-free soy sauce and other such things to impart that umami flavor that you seek in the fish. Uh, similarly, with the unami or unagi alternative, we use uh, Japanese eggplants, and we've been able to remove that bitter flavor while creating that great unagi bite. And so that's the process we use. It's, uh, it's proprietary, so it's not something I can share too much on, uh, but it's a mechanical process using no chemicals and allows us to have probably the cleanest label of all animal protein alternatives on the market. Hmm. So... Everybody listening to this podcast is going to know about all the press the last year or two with plant-based protein replacements. Uh, the big splash is impossible and beyond has made, but th obviously they're going after the beef and to some degree the pork replacement markets. There's also a number of companies focused on chicken replacements what what are what what's the same in your case with seafood replacements and what's different? Sure. Well, I think one of the main factors that has driven the excitement around beef alternatives has been growing awareness of the problems in terms of sustainability that arise from growing cows for food and the fact that they produce so much methane and require so much grain and water to grow. So it's a very inefficient process, which has major impacts on climate change, soil, et cetera. And we have a very similar situation in seafood, where our oceans just can't keep up with the size of the catches that we are attempting to extract from the oceans and from fresh rivers. And the numbers of stocks are dwindling so quickly that we have species that are endangered and going extinct left and right, actually more quickly than on land. And other issues like um, coral reef erosion and other areas, algae blooms, all these problems that occur from overfishing. One thing that people don't know, with all of the recent talk of plastic straws and the detriment they have on our oceans, the number one source of plastic in our oceans is actually fishing line and fishing nets that are left behind. So in terms of the solution that we are bringing to market, we're looking to address many of the same problems that the other animal protein alternatives are looking at. The major difference would be that we're so new to the game. The plant-based seafood market is in its infancy, and it's really an exciting time to be involved. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, non-dairy milks really amounted to uh, a fraction of a percent of fluid milk sales in the U.S. and really just one or two kinds, primarily soy and some rice milk. But today, everybody knows we have dozens of kinds of non-dairy milk, everything from sunflower seed and hemp to oats. 
and they amount to almost 15% of all fluid milk sales in the U.S. And that's been partially due to a desire to move away from dairy, but also partially just an appreciation of this inc- the incredible flavors, textures, and experiences you can get from these new products. In a similar way, plant-based seafood is in its infancy, but we see the opportunity as having so much upside, and we're so privileged to be at the beginning of this. And we're already seeing a lot of excitement. One of our uh, collaborators in the space, a company called Gathered Foods, which has the brand Good Catch Foods, just announced they closed a $32 million Series A investment round a few weeks ago. Mm. Yesterday, Nestle announced that they will be coming out with a plant-based tuna of their own. So the excitement is really, really coming to bear we were one of the first to market, and we're thrilled to join with others in addressing this serious issue. I guess when I think of when I think of beef and uh, pork alternatives, I think back to twenty or twenty-five years ago. I'm going to call them first-generation alternatives, like Boca or Morningstar Farms. And I guess the bad news with those is that they didn't really taste that close. <laughs> to the original product, but uh, but the good news is they laid down a market so that when Impossible and Beyond came along, there were you know a fair number of people who were already eating these plant-based alternatives. In, in your case, do you think the cycle times are gonna be compressed? Do you think uh, seafood won't take 25 years to catch on to the degree Absolutely. that it has? Absolutely, there's such an excitement for this new market that people are ready to try new things every day. And we benefit from a lot of the learning that was done over those 30 or 40 years of improvements in meat alternatives to bring that to bear on the first generation of seafood alternatives. Mm-hmm. And and um, boy, if somebody just raised $32 million and now Nestle's in the game, I guess that's going to jumpstart a lot of this too as well, I would think. Absolutely. And Impossible has announced that they intend to launch a fish broth of sorts. And really, we're seeing a lot of excitement. And everybody's recognizing that this is the next frontier and that kind of untapped opportunity. And when you look at the growth of animal protein consumption in the world, globally, animal protein consumption is rising while it's dropping in North America. However, the fastest growing is seafood. And so the crisis is serious and it can only get worse unless we do something about it. But fortunately, people are jumping in to make that difference. And I'm excited. I do believe the timeline for adoption will be compressed. And we're seeing wonderful feedback from the market. So if, if we look at uh, these other alternatives out there, uh, let's assume that Nestle comes up with, uh, with some sort of alternative or, or Good Catch does. I would assume they're going to go primarily into grocery stores. Your distribution chain, is it exclusively in restaurants at this point in time? So we sell in multiple types of venues, but we sell as an ingredient for prepared foods or for value-add consumer products. So we're in many restaurants. We're also in institutional operations like college campus cafeterias and corporate cafeterias, hospitals. And then we're also in some retailers but when we're in retailers, we're selling within their prepared foods. Like you might get it in a sushi roll in their sushi kiosk or on the cold bar or salad bar. That's where you would see it. Whereas, whereas the other products that are out there, you primarily see standalone in a package to take home for a consumer. The other big difference is that we've intentionally chosen to tackle 
uh, raw and smoked fish and some of these more premium seafood proteins, all the other products on the market are really going after cooked seafood, primarily canned tuna. And the benefits that we bring, uh, and, I, and, and those are all my allies and my colleagues. I love that in this mission-driven space, we don't see each other as competitors. But even if we were to think from a place of competition, where we have a real leg up is that we are um, selling into really premium markets with price volatile and expensive seafood items. And we can compete on price in a way that a lot of the other products can't. Because at the end of the day, canned albacore tuna is extremely cheap, uh, unfortunately, uh, but raw, proper sushi-grade tuna will never be cheap, and it's only getting more expensive every day. Mm. So we have a financial opportunity there. And then in terms of the product, as I mentioned, our products are so clean because we're using whole vegetables. So that's something that's very appealing to the growing number of consumers looking for clean labels. Well, that's an interesting topic. Uh, you do have to worry a bit as a consumer when you consume raw fish. Do you have to worry if you go to a, a sushi restaurant and consume your product from a food safety standpoint? It's a great question. It's actually one of the strongest cases for our product is that it's absolutely safe for pregnant women, the elderly and infirm, and many others who are choosing not to consume or to reduce their consumption of raw fish. And the reason that we've actually decided to sell in food service rather than in retail packaging, it's funny. The reason is because consumers in, in North America are not used to making raw fish dishes at home because they are intimidated by food safety. So even though ours has none of those problems because you're not dealing with a raw animal protein and actually our product is cooked in and of itself, because people aren't used to rolling their own sushi, making their own poke, chopping their own tartare, we felt that it would be an extra amount of education to teach people how to start making those dishes and then convince them to make them plant-based rather than selling it in the form and at the place where consumers are already seeking these items. Over 90% of sushi is eaten outside the home. 96% is purchased outside the home uh, in finished form. So that's where we want to be. We want to be at the place where others are looking for these kinds of products. So the value prop for the consumer is, uh, you know, first, uh, I'm doing good things for the planet and the health of the oceans. Secondly, I've got... Uh, simpler food safety issues than consuming raw seafood. But how about the taste? What what kind of reaction do you get from consumers? I was hoping you'd bring up taste because I hope that's the number one value proposition is that we just, I'm privileged that because of our chef, we just make an extraordinary product. And I can say that having uh, chosen to get involved once I met him and tried his product uh, long before we became business partners and before it was on the market, and uh, his palate and his dedication to detail, the fact that he has 30 years experience as one of the world's leading chefs means that we'll never let something, something leave our factory doors that isn't exceptional. And the reaction from the market has shown that. We have received incredibly positive reviews from food critics in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, NPR, Cranes, Wall Street Journal, uh, CBS Morning News, etc., and we've received innovation awards from Whole Foods Market and Cisco, one of the largest food service distributors in the world. So we've been really privileged with the response. And it's showing on the other side, too. Our products available not just in run-of-the-mill 
sushi operations or college cafeterias, but even showcased in some 30 or $40 a dish tartars and carpaccios at Michelin-starred restaurants. So it's really received an incredible reaction from the market, and I feel privileged to be part of it. So would consumers what, – what, give me some details. What would consumers say? Would they say, wow, I can't believe this is plant-based, or would they say this is, this is very close, but what, what would they actually say? Yeah, well, the first thing is we hope they don't know that it's tomato until after they taste it because they would never believe us. And that's what we find over and over again. I'll always say, do you have any allergies? Okay, cool. Try this. And their, their answer is always, what kind of fish is this? And then when I tell them, they freak out. It's, mm. it's an exciting thing um, to be able to see such culinary magic with things like tomatoes and eggplants. And the number one reaction is that the texture is something really unique and extraordinary. We are working with products, uh, we're, we're replacing products that tend to have quite subtle flavors. So raw tuna has a fattiness to it in terms of mouthfeel, which we replicate with the use of algae oil and sesame oil, but it doesn't have a ton of flavor unless it's spoiled, which unfortunately much of the fish we're eating is not as high quality as it could be. Um, so what we really excel at is in the texture that we're able to produce that uh, mimics the fish flesh so perfectly. Mm-hmm. And how about the nutrition and the health aspects of your product versus actual seafood? Sure. So we do not have the kind of protein content one would see from uh, a piece of fish protein or from some of the other protein analogs that are made out of isolated soy proteins or other things of that nature. But we have a fraction of the calories, a fraction of the sodium. I mean, tiny, tiny amount of fat. It's less than a tenth of a gram of fat in a full sushi roll serving uh, of our product, uh, 120 calories, and it's got none of the PCBs, parabens, plastics, or other uh, toxic substances that you're finding in seafood. Mm. I'm here with David Benzikin, who is co-founder and CEO of Ocean Hugger Foods. David, one of the things we've read a lot of press about about companies like Impossible is that they have faced scaling and distribution problems. To this day, you still you still have a limited number of choices on where you can buy an item like Impossible. You mentioned you've got a proprietary process likewise in your products. How has that impacted your ability to scale and, and, and really reach everyone you'd like to? It's a great question. I think our challenges have been a little different from some of those other companies, but we've certainly faced uh, opportunities and and, uh, overcome obstacles to be able to scale. The number one thing that we faced was because we're dealing with whole vegetables and they're grown in the elements, we've had to deal with the effects of climate change, ironically. Uh, You know, we, we, we use farmed tomatoes, greenhouse or outside and eggplants and other things that are grown in the elements. And so we've seen things like floods and droughts affect us. Um, But over the last few years, we have taken the time to perfect the varietals of vegetables we're using and to create redundancy in our supply chain to ensure that we have the scalability and consistency and quantity of produce that we need to meet our needs. Uh, And we work very hard to ensure that there is minimal waste. So 
Um, in the eggplant, we use 100% of the product. In the tomato, we all the byproduct, the peels and seeds of the tomatoes are used by other companies in tomato paste manufacturing. So we take very seriously uh, using the, the entire plant and, and uh, scaling in a way that is uh, that meets the cut the the market's needs, and that's why we've taken our time to ensure that we can do that. So we produce on multiple continents and grow on multiple continents, so that we can adapt to various climate or other issues. So you've got a product you're quite proud of. Consumers are saying great things about it. You're solving a lot of problems. What what keeps you awake at night? What are your biggest challenges for your business at this point in time? I think that it, for the longest time, was the issue of the supply chain. Now it has to do with our ability to accelerate our R&D pipeline quickly enough. And that goes back to the supply chain. We have a ton of products that are in the pipeline. And every time we come out with a new one, we're spending quite a significant amount of time working to identify the perfect varietal, grow the trials of that seed. And we're not genetically modifying. I want to clarify, we're hybridizing seeds like you would to create different flavors of apples. Um, but every time you do that, you need a new grow cycle and you need to see how that results. And then you, you know, take this plant and that one, you say, I want a little bit bigger and a little bit more red. Uh, so every time you try a new product, it takes a while to scale the supply chain. So that's our biggest uh impediment to growth but we are uh preparing to launch our third and fourth products in the next two quarters we're super excited about those and we see uh the acceleration of our pipeline really growing quickly because as we know what's coming in the future we're already sourcing for those things and can can you give our listeners any hint of what you're doing or is that still proprietary yeah, I can mention the next product or one of the two next products that we'll be launching is Sakimi. It's a salmon made from carrots, uh, made using a similar process to our tomato tuna and our eggplant eel. Uh, and the next product after that, I'm afraid you'll have to wait and see. The same we've talked about a little bit in the media, uh, but the next one is still under wraps for the moment, but it'll be out shortly. Mm. And so if you were, you know, what can you share about your sort of mid to long-term plans for the company three, four, five years from now? Sure. So we are seeing a lot of growth in the U.S. and Canada and Mexico and the Caribbean, where we're just starting now. But we really believe this is a global opportunity and a global need. And so this business has aspirations to sell everywhere in the world. We have strategic partnerships with companies that are among the largest uh, Asian foods and seafood suppliers in the world. And with them, we intend to launch globally. So one of those companies is a Japanese foods distribution company with operations in 40 countries that has already committed to bringing us globally. And uh, that's what we're looking at now. So we've just we've just started selling in the UK and are expanding eastward across Western Europe and then going from there. Beyond that, we aim to address, as I mentioned, a number of other species uh, and to look at how we can solve more and more of this overfishing crisis by providing products that meet consumers at different eating occasions and different flavors and textures. So we are looking at a wide swath of the seafood market. Wow, big plan. So do you do all your manufacturing and processing in the United States today? 
We do not. We actually produce all of our products at the source of where the main vegetable ingredients are. And so currently we produce in Mexico, Turkey, and Thailand. That also allows us to be able to sell into those markets. Hmm. And um, uh, and so when you mentioned UK, for example, are you are you looking to open up processing operations there or just ship a finished or semi-finished product over there? So we are uh, producing in Turkey for European Union sales. And uh, Turkey is one of the largest tomato growers in the world, and they also grow eggplants. So that's where we've established our operations there. Hmm. So when you look back over the company so far, can you share any particular successes or failures in new product development that our audience would find interesting? Sure. So one thing that we've done uh, is really think about, as we've gotten learnings from the market, is really thinking about the packaging format and how that is optimized for the customer. So we have industrial manufacturers, folks who are buying by the container and making value-add products they sell into, you know, into grocery stores with our ingredients. And they don't, you know, they don't want small packaging. Frankly, they like the more bulk, the more bulk, the better, because they plan on using huge quantities very quickly for production runs. But if you're going to a restaurant, they have very small space for storage of frozen or refrigerated product. And they don't want to have to buy large quantities at a time because they've got razor thin margins. So we've already done things like decrease our case size and our packaging size substantially. So we had a case that was about 30 pounds and a unit of about two and a half pounds. And now we've gone down to a one pound unit and a six kilo or 15 pound case. And that's made a huge difference for our restaurant customers who are looking for uh, convenience and how they can fit the products into their limited menus and limited kitchens. And, and so here in the U.S., um, what are your what are your ramp up plans for restaurants? I, I did some checking. The I live in the Denver area. So far, there's one restaurant that that uh, carries your product. Do you plan mm-hmm. significant restaurant expansions here in the U.S.? Absolutely, and not just restaurant, but also our other our other operations like going into retail with other products and in institutional food service. So we are uh, launching partnerships with companies like Sodexo uh, and Aramark and other institutional food service providers, Bon Appetit, um, others who do a lot of colleges, corporate offices, et cetera. But also, yes, restaurants. We have just launched with a large poke chain called Ahi Poke. Uh, we are selling in another chain in the Midwest called Blue Sushi Sake Grill, which has a number of locations. In Canada, we're in a uh, large chain called the Yuzu Group. So, uh, And we're launching in retailers in their sushi kiosks throughout the U.S. and Canada nationwide as we speak. So we do intend major expansion. When it comes to restaurants, it really depends on how many restaurants there are in a certain geography that cater to the kind of cuisines that would be fitting for our products. So, uh, you know, there are beyond sushi, our products are really great for tartare, uh, crudo, carpaccio, poke. So there are a number of different cuisines where that's applicable, 
but not everybody is looking for those dishes. And so in those circumstances, certainly retailers and institutional operations that would have more expansive menus or options would be a great fit to find it. You got, you guys are moving really, really fast. How, uh, w- tell our listeners again, when did you originally found this business? So we started in stealth mode in uh, 2016 and launched into the market in a dozen Whole Foods sushi bars in November of 2017. Wow. So here we are only a couple of years later and you're rocking and rolling, even expanding in international locations. There's huge opportunity and we've solved for our scaling challenges. And, uh, you know, we have global retailers and global restaurant chains coming to us and we didn't want to do it too early. But now that we have those things worked out, we know that we're ready for it and we're excited to supply these solutions to the market globally. The the big thing that we're holding off on, but will be a massive part of our long-term strategy, will be Asia. China and Japan are huge opportunities. China because of just obviously the size and the population size, and Japan because of the amount of fish that's consumed. Uh, fortunately, we are developing those strategic partnerships so that when we are ready, we'll take them on full speed ahead and have some really great success there. But those are markets where we've decided to uh, wait until we have significant marketing resources to introduce the products and till we've uh, really studied the markets to understand how to sell into them and how best to introduce them. So we are thinking strategically about where to go, but we see Europe is being quite similar to North America in terms of adoption of plant proteins and in terms of uh, consumption of these products. And so that's why we've chosen to go there. Speaking of resources like marketing resources, uh, is there, uh, and you can certainly answer this no comment, but do you have <laughs> plans for another funding round? Yes, we do. We'll be announcing uh, the close of another financing round in about a month. Um, And uh, we have raised uh, some money and are continuing to do so and will need to continue to do so because it's it's not cheap to run a food company with uh, all the manufacturing and distribution and everything else that goes into it. Uh, but we've been very fortunate to have some incredible collaborators and, and investor partners uh, ranging from mission-driven angels and uh, family offices to global strategic food companies. And we're privileged to work with them and excited about how they can help us go to new heights. Well, congratulations on that next funding round. Given how hot, Thank you. Yeah, given how hot your space is right now, you must have people lined up wanting to write you checks. There is certainly a lot of excitement and I have a lot of conversations with folks about the opportunity and when we're thrilled and happy to be part of this change. Uh, You know, we're seeing excitement, not just from those who are interested for a pure mission standpoint, but people who are recognizing that the amount of inefficiencies that exist in the way we raise animals for food and growing consumer awareness about health, sustainability and animal welfare really make this a prime opportunity to shake up the food industry. So you've talked about a couple of products in your pipeline. You obviously have some things in your pipeline that you can't disclose at this point in time. What in general, David, can you tell our listeners about speed bumps that you 
have hit in terms of your new product development cycles? They would really come down to what I mentioned about identifying where the best supply chain is and, um, you know, perfecting the growing process for getting just the right size, just the right color and everything else. Texture and taste are not actually as important to us, ironically, because our technology is all about being able to play with that. Um, but, you know, we need the product to look great. We need to have it in consistent and uh, consistent sizing and uh, year round. And so those are the areas that we've spent the most time having to work on. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give to startups, I guess, in general in the food industry, but also maybe specifically, if you would, in the plant-based area, what, what advice would you give to folks thinking about moving into this space? Yeah, I think it's an incredibly exciting time, and I certainly encourage folks to do it. Um, there is uh, an unlimited, it seems currently at least, there is an unlimited amount of interest from uh, capital players looking to support these kinds of initiatives and these, and these innovations. And so that's a really great opportunity to come to market. Uh, in terms of challenges, I think we need to be really realistic about when we have something that meets a need that is substantial enough to warrant launching a company around. I'm not sure that I would launch an entire company around, uh, you know, a non-dairy cottage cheese tomorrow. Not to say that it couldn't be fantastic, but I'm not thinking that make a whole company currently. Um, and also, you know, I think there's always opportunity for innovation and improvement, but certainly looking at white space is essential. Um, and then understanding what consumers are looking for. Many of the folks who come to this mission come to it from a wonderfully passionate place of wanting to change the food system and consumers want the same thing, but we need to approach them where they're at and recognize that not everybody is looking to go vegan tomorrow and that's okay. If we enable people to make conscientious choices that make the world a better place one meal at a time and help them change one product at a time or swap things in and out here and there, that's already making a huge difference. And so as we think about how we market, how we message, how we speak to consumers, we need to respect their choices. We need to engage with them and we need to support them by offering them things that make the right choice easy and desirable rather than preaching to them. Uh, along the same lines, I'd say that we really need to be open-minded about collaborating with the food industry as it is. The food industry has gone through a lot of changes, and of course, many of the challenges we see today in our public health system have resulted from some of the poor choices that uh, have been made around diet and around marketing products poorly. But the reality is that the food companies out there also are looking to feed people. They have resources and they have distribution networks and uh, food science expertise and other things that take decades to develop. And I think thinking how about how we can collaborate with industry to feed the masses in a way that makes the food of tomorrow healthier, more sustainable, and more ethical than the food of yesterday is really how we need to approach that opportunity. All, all good advice. I want to explore the give consumers what they want angle a bit more. 
Henry Ford famously said, if I asked my customers what they want, they would have said a faster horse. Horse and buggy, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, your story was your co-founder went to the fish market in Japan and had an epiphany about the oceans, and that was a lot of your mission-driven approach. I'm not sure consumers you know, five years ago would have said, oh, well, when I go to my favorite sushi restaurant, I want my tuna to be replaced with a plant alternative. So it's, <laughs> it's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky getting inside the head of consumers and somehow reading their minds. Absolutely. But I think sometimes the biggest challenge is doing so from marketing speak. And I say that as a marketing guy, you know, sometimes we're so stuck in thinking about how we think consumers think that we forget that we ourselves are consumers. What drives our purchasing decisions? We are motivated by taste. We're motivated by health. We're motivated by convenience and also other factors. But we need to remember those things first and foremost and recognize that we ourselves would be sitting down to eat. And what would we want? One of the reasons that our products are so successful is because we can say to a restaurant, Every party of six that you're bringing into that restaurant is guaranteed to have a consumer who's not going to eat 90% of the things on your menu. And if you don't offer solutions for them that are not just available, not just the grilled vegetable platter that's waterlogged or whatever else, but actually something they desire, you just lost that whole six-person table. There's a $200 check. And so that has to do with meeting consumers where they're at and offering them what they want, whether it's in the restaurant or at home. And when it comes to the products we think about, we absolutely need to think ahead, but we also need to think about what is motivating the changes we're already seeing and how the innovations we're thinking about would go in that direction. And so, you know, think about the trends that we're experiencing now. We're looking at a lot of demand for clean labels. We're looking at a lot of interest in reducing how, how much animal protein we're consuming and skyrocketing growth in every other category of non-animal of, of uh, non-animal proteins and so certainly it's not totally out of left field that people would want to see that uh carried over into seafood especially as one of the major motivators outside of taste price and convenience is sustainability so I think it is about being innovative and thinking ahead of the curve but it's about understanding the motivation that will make the consumer desire it. And uh, that is going to have similarities to why they're already choosing things today. Yeah, David, welcome to my world. Because every time uh, we go to a restaurant, my wife's a, a vegetarian, and there's very typically a, a, a lot of unhappiness on her part that it is, <laughs> it's that, you know, vegetable platter or whatever. It's that sad, oh, we got to put something here for vegetarians. Yeah, gone are the days where that's where that's okay. I mean, you know, 40% of Americans are looking to reduce their meat or animal protein intake annually. 17% are eating vegetarian for more than half their meals. And I think we have to recognize that culinary excellence is about being able to imbue flavor and texture into a number of things. No chef got ahead by learning only how to cook a piece of meat. And I've seen extraordinary meals made with just vegetables, grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, beans, and all the things that I enjoy. And so really, this is an opportunity for chefs to shine and to showcase what incredible things they can do with these beautiful ingredients. Because when you think about it, if you get a chicken breast or you get a piece of meat, 
before you season it, it doesn't taste like much. And that's the exact same thing. Everybody's like, oh, well, salad doesn't taste good. Well, no, I don't eat iceberg and iceberg lettuce and tomato salads ever. I eat a salad every day, but my salads have 20 ingredients and different textures and all kinds of different nutrients and all kinds of different flavors. So we are, as consumers and as culinarians, responsible for ensuring that we provide for, you know, through hospitality, through the, for the satisfaction of our guests. And that includes the tens of millions of Americans who are, for whatever reason, be it health, be it animal welfare, be it sustainability or anything else, for just for the sake of diversity and variety in their foods, who are choosing to eat this way. Mm. So, David, one of the questions I ask all of our guests is, and I think you've probably answered a little bit of this already, but what what advice would you give to folks just starting their career in this business? Yeah, I think that the one thing that I wish I had pursued right out of school would be a job with a traditional food company. I went out into the market with the goal of changing our food system. And at the time, the only way I knew how to do that was to go into advocacy around political advocacy, legislative advocacy, and other areas, or, or consumer advocacy, where I was trying to encourage people to make different choices or legislators to vote a certain way. And I think that that's very important. But when it comes to food, people are motivated by the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste of the experience they're having when they're eating, the people they're around, all these cultural factors. And so at the end of the day, the way we're going to get people to change their eating habits is with the food. Uh, when I finally realized that I could make a greater impact using telling the story of food as a marketing person before I started this company and moved into that space, a whole new world unlocked. And I was motivated by a gentleman named Jeff Dunn. Uh, Jeff Dunn was the former CEO of Coca-Cola North America. And he went on to become the CEO of Bolt House Farms, which he actually just took over again after buying it back from Campbell's. And he realized that he could apply the same marketing and branding tactics that had been used for products like soda and chips to the humble carrot. And when I heard him speak about how he could make carrots sexy and exciting and change people's eating habits to the point where today carrots are in every household as a snack, whereas years ago they were just one more vegetable to look at sadly in the corner, I realized that we could do that for plant-based food. And that was why I got into this. The reason I say that I wish I'd gone to a big food company to start is because I think I could have accelerated that process of learning how food gets to the table and gets to the store shelf and how to intervene in that process to make sure that the right food is getting to the right place with the right story. Mm -hmm. So, David, before we go into wrap up, any other words of wisdom that you'd like to provide or any other comments for our listeners? Uh, I just want to thank you for having me on. I hope that folks will check out our website, oceanhuggerfoods.com. And we're, of course, on every social media platform you can think of. And uh, we always are excited when people submit photos of our products in different restaurants they're finding it in. We have a store locator where you can find the products near you. And uh, certainly tell local businesses that you want them to carry our products. We can distribute anywhere in the U.S. and Canada through the master distributors we use who sell into everybody from Cisco and U.S. Foods and 
all the major distributors. Um, when it comes to words of wisdom, uh, join us. Whatever your issue is in making a good food future, this is the perfect time to do it. Uh, consumers are looking for these solutions, whether your issue is soil nutrition or animal welfare or public health and increasing produce consumption, whatever it may be, this is the right time to do it. And uh, I'm very excited to have anybody join the space. And every single person has skills that are applicable here. What's so nice about the food system is that it's so vast that we need truckers and we need marketers and we need chefs and we need copywriters and we need everybody. And so it's, it's a really exciting time. And I just encourage everybody to get involved. And every day I'm hearing from people in large food companies who've spent the last 20, 30 years in senior executive levels with big food companies saying, I never thought I could make a career out of doing something that was more tailored at my real values. And now I'm realizing that I can do that. So I'm seeing people going from working with some of the larger food companies to some of these more innovative companies or working within those companies to leverage those resources for good. And that's a really exciting thing. Everybody's coming together. And so there's an opportunity for everybody. Uh, if you're interested in this area of replacing animal proteins with more sustainable and healthy proteins, you can look at the Good Food Institute, www.gfi.org, which is a think tank and uh, advocacy organization accelerating this space. And I hope you'll get involved. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I've been involved on the technology side of the food business for over 25 years now, and I've never seen a more exciting time with change happening all over the place and lots of lots of neat things. So, David, thank you so much for being on the podcast, everyone. I want to thank my guest, David Benzikin, who is the co-founder and CEO of Ocean Hugger Foods. And, wow, what an exciting business you've built and are continuing to build. So we wish you the best of luck, and we're going to carefully track your progress in the coming months and years. Thank you so much for having me. True privilege. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play. This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own.